Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Heidi, and I'm bringing you John chapter 6 today. And just before we begin, I'd like to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that has been read out with such confidence because we have confidence in you as our eternal Father, our loving Father, our consistent time, our consistent person in time of need. So we pray this morning, Lord God, that as the words are spoken through your word, that our hearts would be open to hear what you have to speak to us this morning. We thank you, Jesus, that your miraculous signs point to you. And so our focus is on you this morning. Amen. I'm going to start with an anecdote because there's nothing more fun than talking about libraries. That is my local library. I'm a huge reader, an avid fan of libraries. Never met a library I don't love. Small country ones, giant state libraries, the smell of books, it gets me every time. Uh, But I'm also a member of the library. That's proof that I actually do attend the libraries. I like to choose books based off of colour, based off of the blurb, perhaps the first few sentences. I bring you an example of a really enticing blurb. It says, if only they'd said no. And I'm like, tell me more. Happily we'll read that, Leanne Moriarty, for those who want to know. But perhaps something a little bit more for the discerning folk, the opening line of War and Peace. No, never going to happen. Cannot abide by something that big if I'm not really even understanding the first line, which I'm I'm not even going to read it out to you here. And the reason why I bring this this morning as my anecdote is because as this story starts, As this narrative of Jesus' life starts, we read, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. It's not super interesting or engaging, and the whole story is really just six verses long. Um, And at first glance, we can literally just glance straight over it. It's short, it's easy to forget, but it's important. So in order to engage with more interest in this story, I've reworked a blurb in the hope that it'll get you hooked in. And my blurb goes as follows. An epic narrative involving the disciples of Jesus row, row, rowing their boat gently across the sea, but they are stuck in the middle of the lake alone and it's dark and a storm is brewing Dot, dot, dot. Is that a ghost that they see? Where is Jesus? And why are the disciples rowing their boat? Well, much like the chicken crossing the road, it was to get to the other side. Now, the miracles that we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks have been part of the seven miracles, the seven miraculous signs in John. And we've had the first four, Jesus turning water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's son, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethsaida, and Shannon spoke last week on the feeding of the 5,000. All of these miraculous signs pointing to Jesus, each sign building on the next, unveiling different parts 
of Jesus' ministry of himself and of the heart of the Father. When Shannon was speaking about the feeding of the 5,000, you might have noticed at the back end of her passage, it speaks about the crowd getting very excited, really engaged in these miracles. Unfortunately, they were wanting the miracles but not focusing on Jesus the Saviour. Trouble is brewing as they thinking to themselves, we want to make Jesus king. And God knew this. And so it was time to move on to the next venue. So Jesus compels the disciples to get into the boat and he himself withdraws to pray. Now the narrative doesn't use a lot of descriptive language, so I imagine it would be easier to use our imaginations to focus on perhaps what the disciples were feeling in that time. Jesus has asked them to get into the boat. The word compel really kind of indicates perhaps there was a bit of hesitancy there. They're getting into the boat, they're rowing across the lake. The text says in the evening time. So we know it's already dark. They've rowed three to four miles, about an hour or two, depending on how efficient they were. So now it's really dark. How did they know where they were going? If a storm is brewing, it's wet, it's cold, it's miserable. We saw it this morning for those who were up early enough. And surely there was cloud cover. The stars covered over, the moon probably covered over, depending on where they were in the lunar cycle. So they're going to already be feeling a little bit nervous. It's not a normal thing to do, rowing in the dark to get somewhere. And some Uh, In Matthew and in Mark, there are retellings of this exact same passage, and they describe the disciples looking out and seeing a ghost or an apparition. But how did they see that if it was super dark? One imagines perhaps a glow or something to alert them to the fact that there was a presence in the distance, and they are understandably fearful, very superstitious society. And Jesus says to them, it is I. It's a statement and they recognize his voice in that moment. They know the voice of Jesus, and they are reassured. They invite Jesus into the boat, and the text says that immediately they reached their intended destination. Not any destination, their intended one. And we continue to read the rest of the story that speaks about the crowd realizing that Jesus was no longer there. They were following him, no longer there, They want to actively seek him out, so they use the boats that have arrived from Tiberias to go and follow him. Now, if you have read this narrative before in Matthew and Mark, you might be wondering, but where is Peter? Because other retellings speak of Peter walking on the water with Jesus. So neither retelling is incorrect. Much like different preachers use the same text, to use different focal points, use their own life experience to interpret things as well. Holy Spirit speaks through them. These stories all corroborate each other, all different perspectives of the same narrative. All, holy, uh, all, all scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And John deliberately left out Peter being in this particular narrative. He didn't forget if it was supposed to be included. It would have been included. And so I would like to have a focus on what this looked like without Peter there. 
we can draw focus to the other miraculous things that were happening. And we also know that in John, it says, John 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we know that there was a purpose to this particular story being included. So without Peter, our focus is drawn to the miracle of Jesus walking on water, having control over nature. This is something new. This is something different. And Jesus bringing them immediately to the other side. When they were focused on Jesus, they reached their intended destination immediately. And John uses that word quite deliberately He's drawing our focus to what was possible for Jesus. And we've got multiple miracles happening just in this very short space of time. Jesus walking on the water, calming the storm, and bringing them to the other side. We see in the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus was able to provide even with small resource. And the rescue on the sea showing that he can protect and guide in the midst of great adversity, even in when we have no control over the forces of chaos. In both cases, Jesus is revealing his identity and his loving care. Through the inevitable storms of life, Jesus is with you. The word inevitable meaning bound to eventually happen. It's going to happen. That doesn't mean that we give up. We live in a fallen world. And therefore, it is inevitable that we would experience adversity in our time on earth. Jesus has always been open with us about that. Godly life in Jesus Christ will include times of trial, 2 Timothy 3. It's foolish to think otherwise, but we are never alone. We have the Holy Spirit with us. We see in Scripture the signs that point us to Jesus himself, giving us something to believe in. But it's more than the hope of eternal life. It's also about living here on earth, a full life, growing, changing, learning, doing it well. As we move through the storm, we have the opportunity to grow in our faith, to gain a deeper understanding of God's love for us, and to grow in spiritual maturity Perhaps the disciples needed to grow in spiritual maturity. At the end of the feeding of the 5,000, Mark says that their hearts were hardened. In the first four miraculous signs that we've spoken about, there's crowds present to witness these signs. And John 4.48 says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. But the disciples were people too. Maybe they needed to believe a bit differently, experience things differently. Surely they already believed in Jesus, though. I mean, you're called to be a disciple. But maybe they didn't think that that would mean real-life drama. Maybe they weren't sure that this would apply to them. I mean, wouldn't you, if you were called, especially plucked out of the crowd? It's easy to see how they might be feeling that. 
So when Jesus compels them to start rowing on sunset at sunset, he knows it's going to be dark. They know it's going to be dark, but to their credit, they do it anyway. Wouldn't they have waited until the next day? I mean, that seems a little bit more logical. But in the dark, the crowds couldn't follow. And there was this frantic movement to make Jesus king. And if that movement started, certainly the Romans would have put a stop to it, come to arrest the disciples and to arrest Jesus, and then cut short the ministry time that God had planned for Jesus' time on earth. The disciples would have been arrested and what, you know, that would not have completed the story that God knew. He knew the whole plan. Also, the disciples were very likely a bit keen on this royalty kingdom narrative because if Jesus becomes king, maybe Judas can be the treasurer, Peter the prime minister. But now is not the hour or the time. It was not the intention of this part of Jesus's ministry. And he was rescuing them from being swept up by this fanatical crowd. We notice in the back end of the passage that the crowds do in fact figure it out. Jesus has moved on and so they follow him, landing in the same place that the disciples landed. But the journey that they took there was different. The crowds were craving these miracles to watch and not at all focused on the signs that Jesus was creating to show himself, to show himself as saviour. Both parties ended up on the other side, but how have the disciples changed? Their journey was formational. Alone and in the dark, with no other witnesses to distract them, the disciples were seeing the consistency of Jesus having control and command over all things calming the sea and delivering them safely to their desired destination. It's a repeat of the pattern that we saw with God leading the Israelites through the Red Sea with Moses and Aaron, but it also shows that Jesus is superior to Moses with the feeding of the 5,000, each sign building on the next. Through this formational journey, they matured in their understanding of Jesus They built resilience. The disciples were on their own path to becoming more mature in Christ, a mindset shift, if you will, becoming more spiritually mature as opposed to the crowds who had not yet understood. They were still immature, like young children, as 1 Corinthians 3 says. I I gave you milk, not solid food for you were not yet ready for it. When I think of immaturity, my mind goes to babies. I work with them a lot. It's a natural transition for me. Babies are born incredibly immature, with immature emotions. When they're inside before coming out, there is nothing that they need to do for themselves. They are kept alive by their mother. They don't breathe. They don't digest food. They barely hear a lot of noise. It's all buffeted. But in the external world, being very immature beings, they are worried about very tiny little things and they blow them out of proportion. Anyone who's been around a six-week-old will know they scream, they make it your problem, but it's not your problem. It's theirs. They're learning how to feel safe in an inherently unsafe world. They are unable to rationalize, 
unable to emotionally regulate, very little resist resilience. And through parenting of consistent reassurance and love, this is how they build the resilience. As they become children, they are more resilient to adversity. They're learning who to trust. And they're also learning that adversity doesn't always equal catastrophe. Not every bad thing that happens must mean that everything is bad. And in much the same way, God is parenting us. We are infants in Christ living by the Spirit. Hebrews 12 encourages us that we have a secure haven in Christ. We are enduring the hardships as children with Jesus beside us. Jesus is with us in the storms of life. Now, sometimes we can react, perhaps in one of two ways. And neither way is inherently wrong. But it's helpful, for my analogy, to think of the mighty cow. When cows experience storms, they huddle together as herd, buffeted by the wind, weathering the storm together by hunkering down and waiting for it to pass over them. And if this is you, Jesus is with you. But maybe we can also be like the buffalo. And when they sense a storm, they turn directly into it and get to the other side seemingly quicker. Jesus is with you in the storm. We're focusing on him because it's essential for reminding ourselves of whose we are. We are in Christ. God the Father is consistent in his love for us. He is a good father, as we sang this morning, stable, reassuring. Not only are there storms in our own lives, but perhaps you're being directed to notice times of difficulty in another person's life. As a church of believers, we have the Holy Spirit to help us discern how to hold each other up and when to speak. It's helpful to recognize when times of difficulty are occurring, be alert but not alarmed. When we acknowledge that this is the place that we are in, the time that we are in, it can help to reframe our thinking. This might be a tough moment that we're in, but we live in faith, not in fear. Practically, the Bible is teaching us to pray for others in their distress, to sit with them in times of trial, and to share testimony when it's appropriate. So we take our cue from Job, who went through seriously difficult and challenging times, and his friends not always great at discerning what to do. But one thing they did do well is sitting with Job in his distress. Where they fell short was when they tried to rationalise why the bad things were happening, why the time of trial was occurring, Job knew, however, that it was a time of trial and he recognised the situation for what it was. He knew and understood that God was faithful and he was very confident of God's love for him. So we too can take heart from that and aim to be encouraging with the help of the Holy Spirit. Personally, when we recognise storms in our life, we can ask the Holy Spirit to give us insight. Sometimes it's just a bad day, and that's okay. It's okay to have a bad day. 
Here on earth there is balance. Bad days don't always mean catastrophes. But sometimes that time of trial is near. It's an opportunity for us to draw close to Jesus, remembering that he anchors us to himself. Perhaps it's time for a mindset shift. Are we sitting in the faith or are we living in the fear? We need not fear when the storms come. We recognise where we are and we remember whose we are, focusing on Jesus who is with us, perhaps recalling times of trial that have happened in the past. God is faithful. Maybe we can even see this as a time of formation, maturing, learning, and drawing close to the Father, who is always consistent in his love for us. As I pray for us as we close, I trust that the Lord is speaking into your heart people that you can pray with and be with in their times of trial. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. All scripture is inspired by you, Holy Spirit, and we thank you, Lord, that when we read it, we can gain a deeper understanding of how much you love us how much you are constantly reassuring us, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would learn how to be consistent in our love for others, for those who need our consistent prayers at this time, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would remind us that this is their time, that they need upholding. I pray, Lord, that if we notice that we are hunkering down to remind us that you are always with us, Lord, even if we are not able to turn into the storm and move through it. We know, Lord, that you are faithful. And regardless of where we are at, your love never changes. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. And we pray that you seal it into our hearts this morning. Amen.